Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Emergency Docs. I'm Dr. R. Please keep in mind that the content of this episode does not constitute medical advice, but is purely for the purpose of education. This episode was supported by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. This is the very last episode of season two of the Emergency Docs. Today, we're talking with a few very special guests about remote and wilderness medicine. I'll introduce our first guest today, Jeff Burke, who was previously a guest on this podcast and wrote the episode about a cardiac arrest at a ski resort in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm really happy to have Jeff back on today with two new guests to tell us more about what it's like working in the backcountry. With that, Jeff, take it away. Thanks. What is it like to practice medicine in an avalanche path or a ravined riverbank? What does that look like? Or say a mass casualty incident in which 17 climbers get struck by lightning at 13,000 feet. It's not like you're down the road from the hospital and can shove a bunch of folks into a Chevy Suburban, arriving quickly to definitive care. Medical intervention has to start somewhere, even if it's miles from the nearest road. So with that, welcome to the deep water pool of wilderness medicine. The impetus for this episode was born from a previous emergency docs podcast in which we broke down a successful heart attack recovery of Jim Hayes that began halfway up the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. It was episode 43, How Medical Response Saved a Life at Jackson Hole. Distilled to its essence, the rescue was an accomplishment thanks to a mixture of basic life support tools, training, and tactics. And let's not forget luck. It's an amazing story, so please don't hesitate to listen to it if you have the time. After participating in that first podcast, I wanted to pursue just how lucky we are to have skilled, dedicated people come find us in the backcountry and high mountains. I have been a ski patroller in Jackson Hole for two decades, and when I think about all the moving parts to conduct even small backcountry rescues, the aspects that really interest me are the decision-making, risk assessment, and execution of emergency medical responses far from the trailhead. Now, without going too far down the rabbit hole of medicine in extreme areas and or tactical under-fire rescue in, say, Syria, I wanted to hear some perspectives of some rescuers higher up the food chain, the wilderness docks. We have a fast-growing active outdoor population that adventures both near and far in the greater Jackson area. For my part, I've had the privilege of working under the medical direction of St. John's Emergency Medical Physicians Group, a cadre of ER docs, physician assistant, and St. John's nurses who rotate through the Teton Village Clinic each summer and winter, several of whom are also on search and rescue. We're here to speak with Dr. Will Smith and Dr. A.J. Wheeler, both of whom have extensive pre-hospital experience and provide medical direction for not only the mountain resort, but also Jackson Hole Fire EMS, Grand Teton National Park, Teton County Search and Rescue, and Bridger Teton National Forest. Both physicians are active members of Teton County Search and Rescue. The Jim Hayes heart attack episode was a worst case scenario. Ground zero for this event was a ski traverse nearly halfway up the resort. And happily, that story had a positive outcome. Yet ski patrols and search and rescue organizations have call outs in all kinds of settings with myriad scene safety considerations, ingress and egress limitations, timing, weather windows, approaching nightfall, prolonged winter storms, resource management, the factors that influence backcountry rescue operations are innumerable. So with that in mind, what kind of medicine gets practiced? For many serious or life-threatening scenarios, wilderness docs play an active role in the calculus and execution of medical intervention that's nowhere near the emergency department. And that takes a certain kind of physician. So we can do a little digging here. So what led each of you to practice medicine in the great outdoors? Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having us, Dr. R. I grew up in Ohio and a young one was uh, into athletics and mostly running. Got into school and I've always loved the outdoors, hiking, camping, backpacking, love the mountain environment. And 
as fate would have it, went to residency in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where I met Will. And Dr. Smith and I started to dip our toes into wilderness medicine by giving free lectures at an REI on first aid kits and altitude illness. And then got lucky enough to follow Dr. Smith out here to Jackson and live in the mountains. And it seemed just like a logical extension with the things I love to do to take emergency medicine out of the hospital, into the backcountry and start working with, with search and rescue. Yeah, it's a slightly different story for me. I actually grew up here in Wyoming and grew up on a 22,000 acre cattle ranch down in southeast Wyoming. So really got a love to the outdoors, kind of trial by fire. So I was out fixing fences with my dad. My senior year of high school, I took an EMT class and that's really where I caught the medicine bug and just continued to work through undergrad and didn't get into medical school the first year I applied. So I actually became a paramedic. And so continue to practice those paramedic skills, did ski patrol, but still had that love and passion. So continued through my emergency medicine residency, like AJ mentioned, where we started hanging out, doing adventure races, those REI lectures. And then we both ended up here in Jackson. And so here has been a great opportunity to continue to expand, not just the, the skills inside the emergency department, but a great backcountry wilderness setting to continue to practice those skills. And that's definitely where I've got more passion to get out there and really make a difference. Let's paint a quick picture. When there's a report of a backcountry emergency to the Jackson Hole Mountain Resort, most often, two patrollers will make the initial move out of bounds to see what happened. This starts a chain of events in which the sheriff's office and subsequently Teton County Search and Rescue are notified that we are reconning a possible interagency mission and that we could need further assistance depending on the severity of the emergency. Normally, this looks like a search and rescue helicopter crew who, with the aid of the ship, can fly deep into a canyon with medical personnel and tools and can help ground workers, like Ski Patrol, fly out a person who can't walk and or move. It's also a handoff to the next higher level of care, which might be a local hospital or larger tertiary care center. When we arrive as a rescue team, we secure the scene as best we can, we present the situation, and package the patient as best we can. The ship then flies into our coordinates, and if there's a physician, they can potentially help with pain management and or invasive treatments somewhere during the course of the egress. A lot of it seems to be about buying time in the field so as to optimize critical care downstream. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the important things to recognize when we're talking about search and rescue is that this is not just helicopter EMS service. We really are search and rescue, so our helicopter's not equipped like a full HEMS ship, and we're pretty resource limited. Are responding to assist with a rescue at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort or somewhere else in the backcountry around here. We really only have a small amount of medical equipment we can carry because we have to carry technical rescue equipment and bring rescuers to the scene. And so our medical equipment's mostly geared towards being able to address life threats immobilize patients and transport them moving into higher levels of care when we need to. Yeah, I think AJ yeah, hit on it. It's really trying to figure out what you should do there and then versus the importance of just getting them out of that environment, maybe mitigating or stabilizing the environment. One of my hats is also as an Army Reserve doc, so I've had combat deployments over in the Middle East. But really, whether or not it's bullets flying at you, whether or not it's an avalanche slope, whether or not it's a bear... Those are all real dangers. And so taking care of patients kind of in each one of those dangerous situations, you really have to mitigate kind of those facts. And sometimes it's just more important to get that person out of there before you start doing the high-level medical care. So I think that's one of the sometimes the traps that more advanced medical providers get into, and especially as docs, because we've got so many tools and toys that we can play with 
But sometimes the more important thing is just to get that patient out rather than using those to stabilize them and you can do that later. You're both charged with having another skill set when you become involved with mountain rescue, especially in the snowy mountains. It's an ancillary skill set, but one in which that requires its own set of hard skills, mountain craft, and earned risk versus reward decision making. Weather, terrain, and snowpack are variables that don't exist in the emergency department, and wilderness docs need to acquire substantial backcountry awareness to be effective. Would you guys care to weigh in on that? Yeah, I mean, I think field experience is super important. Functioning as medical directors and as members on search and rescue, being able to experience what search and rescue members are going through, being in the field and, and understanding that, and then having that knowledge when you aren't actually in the field and knowing what your provider are trying to do and what they might be coming up against in the field is, is super important. And so I do think that's why being a member on search and rescue is super helpful. But just like in the ER, when you're trying to manage a difficult airway, you have to know the, the risks at a time and be able to anticipate those. We have to know the, the risks of the environment we're going into from you know avalanche terrain, technical high angle rescue, with the addition of the complicating medical care and patient condition. It's a fun puzzle to solve. Yeah, I think AJ mentioned that word fun there at the end. So kind of sometimes a little silly or crazy, but it is the challenge. So working kind of day in, day out of the emergency department gets to be the same. But when you're out there in what I like to call the term, the technical rescue interface, so that's kind of where the ambulance stops at the end of the road. And that's where you have to really use those backcountry technical rescue skills to get that patient out. And then as a medical director, sometimes we're on scene and providing that care. Sometimes we're kind of remote, helping people make some of those advanced medical decisions. And sometimes there's no communication. So I think that's one of the big things is helping prepare those that are going into those fields with the right skills and training so that they're able to take care of the patients if we're not there or they can't get a hold of us. And so just, yeah, those, those medical protocols and guidelines in these remote austere wilderness environments are really key for patient care. So let's go back to when you were talking about scene safety a minute ago. When we learn about wilderness medicine, we learn that the first question you ask approaching a patient is, is the scene safe? In a test scenario, you can usually address this, but in a real life scenario, the scene is almost never completely safe. As you mentioned, there's bullets or bears or other risks. So can you talk a little bit more about scene safety and the realities of practicing medicine in avalanche territory, flood zones, bear territory, war zones? I think for me as a ski patroller, and we do a lot of things that are snow-based, and then even in the summer with some of the other just on-mountain situations, it's the 30,000-foot view is kind of just generally speaking weather considerations, the snowpack, the terrain for us. A lot of it is doesn't have to be necessarily rocket science. You just kind of show up on a scene after an avalanche has happened, and you can see typically what's transpired. You can see the avalanche. You can typically see where to like places where you can go where you shouldn't be going how to maybe enter where you don't put yourself or any of the other rescuers are in any type of danger i think in the summer for us a lot of the is the scene safe when there's high angle rescue and there's ropes and there's redundancy in the rope systems there's a lot more things that are going on and we practice a lot with that. And then you just basically do a lot of systems checks and you have put those into place to make sure that everybody who has a part can do it and has control of the part that they play in this puzzle. And you just kind of, you're part of the mission. You're confidently doing your part of the mission. Does that make sense? Yeah. So basically scene awareness, awareness of what's going on around you, 
practicing things so that you know that it's second nature when you're doing it in the scene and trusting the people around you that they're doing their part of the overall pie, I guess. Yeah. And as a kind of lower level person in the, in the food chain, I kind of just show up, paint a scene as best I can so that people higher up the food chain can have a clear idea of what has transpired and what they can do to get this person to more definitive care. Dr. Smith, Wheeler, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think scene safety is, is always something like you said. It's not generally not a completely safe scene when you are in these environments because there's already some sort of injury or illness that's already uh, happened. And so just the, by the nature of the wilderness or remote environment, you just have to take those into account. So like you mentioned, training proficiency, really having a good team because really it, that's what it takes to get these patients kind of safely out of the backcountry and in these environments is the team that you're with. I'm not a fan of the safety for first paradigm. I think there's a great article out there by Seth Hawkins, another learner's medicine practitioner, changing that up to safety third, which I think may have been initially spearheaded by Mike Rowe on his TV series. But it just brings to light what I think Dr. Smith pointed out, which is search and rescue providers, we can't always have a perfectly safe scene. We have a job to do, and we're going to always look to mitigate the risks around that job as much as possible, which makes hard decisions for us sometimes. But you have to acknowledge that what we do is not always safe. And you risk a lot to save a lot sometimes. And sometimes you do have to make those hard decisions, but pushing safety to that third position or that perfect safety to that third position, recognizing that you're working hard to mitigate risks, I think is important. I think that kind of answers the next question I was going to ask you, but kind of along the same topic, we know that these rescues are extremely dangerous for the rescuers in a lot of cases. And on one of my local mountains, a rescuer died a couple years ago searching for a lost hiker. So how does the risk to rescuers play into the decisions on what type of rescue happens, when it happens, how long the search goes, things like that? I think a lot of the decision making is based off of people who have had a, the more experience you have and seeing the different varieties of different, the little nuanced differences between what are normally similar rescue situations. For an example, you can have someone who's got a knee injury, but they're in a really dangerous spot above a cliff or other kinds of terrain challenges that make something that is a normally mundane rescue very complex or complicated. And then when you have more serious injuries coupled with lots of egress challenges, everybody kind of has to elevate their game a little bit. And you have a lot more decisions that need to be made quickly, definitively, and have confidence that you know what you're doing. So, for example, when we've had people who've been injured and bringing like a toboggan into them, the rescuers have to pass really complicated rock features. And I remember a couple of years ago, I just said, stop. And we called for a 300 foot rope because the two patrollers that were bringing the toboggan in were above us and there was no room for them to make an error. So we brought the rope, we put them on belay. And sure enough, as they were coming down to us, it got less and less snow covered. They were even knocking a few little rocks nearby. And had they come in without any type of redundancy or backup, that situation could have been much, much worse. And I'm sure both of the doctors have their own experiences where things have 
had kind of spun out of, not out of control, but just kind of like developed more complications over time. One of the things I think we use a lot is the incident command system or ICS. And so it helps designate some of those roles. So you have an incident commander who's actively making the decisions of go, no go with input from the rest of the team. A lot of times you'll have a safety officer that's more focused on those safety concerns, the risk reduction possibilities, whereas you got the the operations section that's really working on trying to get the mission done. And, And sometimes that can get us into a tunnel vision of just getting it done at all costs. But hey, there might be this way or to reduce the risk or do it another way. A lot of times we use helicopters, but again, sometimes the helicopter, even though the helicopter is risky in itself, it reduces the overall risk of the mission. So you might be able to do a helicopter rescue with three people, get the rescue done in 30 minutes versus if you do a ground rescue and you're going to need 30 to 50 people kind of eight hours through the night, the helicopter is ultimately the, the less risk. So I think looking at some of those kind of risk stratification, risk mitigation are, are definitely important to try and kind of make it as safe as possible. And sometimes there's points where the risk is just too great and we need to wait till the following day or to drop some avalanche bombs just so we don't get more rescuers hurt because then we're going to ultimately have more patients. Yeah, Elena, I think we will and I take your question very seriously because it hits very close to home. We unfortunately also lost a team member in a helicopter accident several years ago. Ray Shriver, one of our members was killed in a helicopter crash. Thankfully, the pilot and another SAR member survived. I mean, we're lucky to have them with us still. But when we're looking at sending our team members out in the helicopter or at night or into avalanche terrain, we definitely weigh those risks very seriously. Several years ago, there was a call out to Teton County Search and Rescue. A young man had slipped on a relatively exposed traverse while climbing Cody Peak in late May. He was sporting alpine boots without hiking soles and he lost his footing and sped down a large backcountry bowl in spring morning conditions, which is to say, hard and fast. He suffered bilateral tib-fib breaks, and by the time ski patrol had been notified, Teton County Search and Rescue and Dr. Wheeler were mobilizing. Patrolman Al Walker and myself were headed up the aerial tram as Dr. Wheeler got dropped off at the start of the Cody hike outside of the resort. Now, if I remember correctly, TCSAR was not set up for short haul with their helicopter, which is typically only eight months out of the year because it was transitioning to the next contract. So we were going to have to move the injured party down the mountain to find a spot where the helicopter could land and pick up the patient. This was less than ideal as the LZ location was still sloped and would be difficult to load the patient into the helicopter. Luckily, Grand Teton National Park Rangers were actually doing their short haul training with a different helicopter. And for their summer season at the time of the incident, they were able to wrap that up and respond to assist by dropping Ranger Chris Harder at the scene. And for the record, short haul is defined as transporting one or more persons suspended beneath a helicopter and is usually employed when ground-based operations are prohibited by cliffs, forests, canyons, rivers, snow, and glaciers. Typically, the duration of the flight is as short as possible to a suitable landing zone where the patient may be transferred to a higher level of medical care. Dr. Wheeler arrived first and was the de facto site commander. Patrolman Alex Walker and I arrived on skis as Dr. Wheeler provided pain management drugs. We all lowered the victim to a flatter spot in the bowl while using a skid, which is a relatively lightweight extrication device. Think of like a backboard roll-up. Now, during this time, the helicopter finished its required training evolution, picked up Ranger Harder, who flew under the helicopter with a litter, which is a rigid titanium basket stretcher for transporting injured persons. One of the factors that made the rescue so smooth was that all the agencies involved 
train routinely with the same short haul protocols. It doesn't sound like much, but when rescuers are dangling 150 feet below a helicopter, pluck an injured person from the middle of the Teton mountain range, there's simply more at stake. So let's talk a bit about risk versus proficiency in training, which means a lot of the time there's a helicopter involved. Yeah, Jeff, I definitely think it's true that you don't often rise to the occasion, but you sink to the level of your training. So when we're talking about short haul, we really focus on training in, in what we call our typical terrain. We're trying to get into terrain that we think is representative of areas that we're where we're going to really be doing rescues. So that when tensions are high, you're going to a rescue. It's not something you've never done before. It's a something you've trained on. So in training, you know, we can contrive these controlled situations in that terrain, make sure that we're making sound decisions throughout that training and not have the concern of a patient who's actually waiting on you or timing factors, weather, and those kinds of things that would increase that risk. And it decreases that risk versus benefit ratio. Yeah, I think I think part of it is just the interagency cooperation that we have here in the Valley as well. So with Dr. Wheeler and myself, as well as some of the other emergency medicine physicians, being able to do medical oversight to coordinate the care between Grand Teton National Park, the ski patrol, search and rescue, fire EMS, everybody's on the same page. And whether or not that's with the technical rescue or that's with the patient care, it allows everybody to have that kind of same common operating picture. We were just doing some training up in Rock Springs a month or two ago. And again, the plan A was to have some ski patrollers be high up in in our Rock Springs Bowl area, and the weather wasn't quite right. So we changed to plan B and everybody is fluid. Everybody's got good communication. And so we were able to pull off the training, but just slightly different location with better weather and factors to make it overall safer. So I think that interagency cooperation, communication is all key when it comes to the day when we really have to to play it out and help save somebody. What factors play into whether you use a short haul or another modality of transport? I think that... Uh... Kind of the scheme I, I typically use is, you know, patient condition is always one of the first things we're looking at. Isolated extremity injury and, and ankle sprain, a broken wrist is different urgency than, you know, pelvis injury, spinal cord injury, or, or shortness of breath in the, in the backcountry. And so that patient urgency can sometimes drive the decision as to the, the mode of uh, rescue that we're going to look at. And then layered on top of that, we start to look at the weather conditions. Is it even possible to safely fly a helicopter? And then ultimately, you know, the, the terrain that we're, we're going into, is it a wide open meadow that is a great LZ? Is it a, a steep treed slope or a short haul may be the only way to, to move somebody who's immobile? And just for our listeners, LZ is a landing zone. Basic life support protocols keep things pretty simple for many of us with limited degrees of medical training. You've both helped to craft collective protocols shared by several of the institutions throughout the Valley much to our benefit, I would submit. And can you touch on the breakdowns of tools, tactics, and prioritizations as they relate to the backcountry events? Yeah, from a, a strategy versus tactics standpoint, we've developed our strategies for backcountry rescue and then really try to identify tactics that we can use to develop that strategy and then ultimately tailor the, the tools and our medical equipment to those tactics to fit into the wilderness and backcountry realm. Uh, you know, things like looking at even the, the AED we carry, you know, we're looking for an AED that's not only capable and small, but we wanted to have the ability to actually see the leads for decision-making in uh, certain backcountry situations. And then it has to be environmentally tough. It has to work with blowing snow, cold, and freezing conditions. So over time, we've worked hard to kind of hone our tools 
to fit into wilderness light and fast tactics that we need to develop our strategy. Yeah, I think like you mentioned, being on the different medical food chain, so being down at the bottom with the basic life support, being up towards the top with the ALS with all the tools and tricks if we're in the emergency department. But like we mentioned before, a lot of times in these environments, we've just got the basic skills to kind of keep our skill ourselves safe, but then also just a limited amount of medical gear and equipment. So a lot of times, even though AJ and I might be physicians, we might not have that many more tools that POS provider have. And so I think it's a lot of the decision-making. There was a cardiac arrest that one of the climbing rangers up in Grand Teton, Scott Gunther, short-hauled into the Maverick. And a gentleman was three hours skinning up one of these backcountry peaks and started having chest pain. And we started the and a rescue response. And so again, looking at the totality of the situation, decided it would be a, a location that would probably be best accessed by short haul, medical emergency. And so again, thinking about what tools do we take with us? We can't take the whole kitchen seek. I've got a, a medical bag that's 40 pounds, but I'm probably gonna be able to take five count pounds of gear. And so again, thinking about what really saves a life. Uh, the AED is one of the things we took with us, a little bit of oxygen. And we were planning on just, uh, again, getting the patient uh, extracted out as quick as we could. But as soon as we got on scene, the patient had gone into cardiac arrest. So again, from plan B to plan C and uh, now D, E, and F. So there's always these backup plans as you're going through these missions. And part of that's just the flexibility, but also planning ahead and being able to get this patient out. And ultimately, he survived. And so again, just a, a great example of that chain of survival that we sometimes see, although not quite what you see in the front country. And I guess to that point, often the time at which it takes to get to a patient and get them out is really what leads to increased survival. I mean, with the cardiac arrest that we had discussed in a previous episode, you guys were able to get him into an emergency department very, very quickly and off the mountain. And in, I think, Europe, their survival rates are very high after avalanches because they're definitive care is much easier to reach because they're kind of close to definitive care. Whereas backcountry Canada, it's much more difficult to get people to definitive care in emergency departments. Have you guys noticed that in your care at all or in the work that you've done and that sometimes time to definitive care makes a difference? Or what do you see as some of the major factors? Well, I just got back from a winter in France, and we all spoke about this on the phone a few weeks ago, but they have helicopters flying all over the place. And they have a lot of the ski areas are way up high in the mountains, and they have actual helicopter companies that work to transport people from almost any location to definitive care quickly and efficiently. They have the PGHM, which is the Peloton Gendarmerie Haute-Montan which is basically a professional search and rescue that is all over France. And they have the same equivalent in Switzerland, Germany, and Italy, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure about those, but I'm pretty confident with France and Switzerland. And kind of piggybacking off what Will said, just having bringing qualified personnel into this area and bring, getting them to definitive care really fast brings those numbers up. And they have that advantage with a lot of the air support. I think when you start really talking about wilderness EMS systems of care, and so you have to start looking at all those variables. So looking at what happens in Europe and their survivability and resources and distances is different than what we have here sometimes in the U.S. in certain locations and in Canada and other, other parts of the world. So I think one of the great textbooks that's out there, so if I'll take a little bit of a Kind of moment. So this uh, textbook by uh, Seth Hawkins, again, kind of one of the people that AJ mentioned, 
if you're really looking at kind of knowing on how to optimize your wilderness EMS care. So I think one of the differences a little bit of a wilderness medicine where you're improvising your kind of backpack into a splint where you're kind of just out there just happen to be taking care of versus in a wilderness EMS systems care, whether or not that's ski patrol, search and rescue, where you really have that duty to act. You really got a patch on your shoulder, you got a radio and you got a response system. This is really good. And so, yeah, for like AJ and myself being medical directors for these wilderness EMS systems of care, those are all the things that you have to look at. Kind of when should you have termination protocols? When does it make sense? When does it increase the risk? So yeah, there's lots of differences out there, but again, still trying to do that best patient care. Yeah, Jeff, I think it's interesting to compare and contrast Europe versus North America, US and Canada. The EMS paradigm and the search and rescue paradigm is very different. Search and rescue in most of North America is volunteer. Definitely in the US, most search and rescue is volunteer organization. Helicopters and equipment are much less common and just geographically much more spread out. And so response times can here be hours versus, you know, in the Alps could be minutes to rescue. And because of that, you know, we do have different strategies and different ways of, of managing these things. I think one good example of one of the strategies we employed pretty commonly is in Grand Teton National Park. We've had several instances of climbing falls with head injuries in the mountains, and uh, the rangers respond and are able to get a ranger on scene. You know, clearly in an emergency department, assessing a trauma patient, decreased GCS, you would manage ABCs and airway comes first. So you're looking at, do I need to manage this, this airway? What can I do? In this situation, however, the technical rescue is the thing that is going to slow us down to getting to that definitive care the, the most. And if the rangers or Will and I were happen to be on scene and, and manage that airway, that's going to significantly impact the rest of that rescue and slow that. The technical pieces for the rescue, as well as the technical pieces of the, the medicine being employed at that point, would significantly delay being able to short haul that patient out. And so what we've done multiple times is, you know, the rangers package those patients up and provide some O2, position them well to protect their airway as best as possible. They're short hauled out to the, the rescue cache where we've essentially set up a kind of a miniature ER. And then once that patient reaches that point, that's the right spot to then start to employ airway management, some of those more advanced techniques before handing off to either the ground ambulance or HEMS for the next transport. Doctor, like in the past, you've mentioned honing really good basic life support training for many rescuers along that chain of command and putting off advanced life support or ALS to keep things simple in the field. And along with the other partners in your group, you guys all foster a robust culture that hammers home simple protocols to patrollers, rangers, paramedics, and search and rescue members. Why are solid BLS skills so essential and what are the nuances of when to pull the trigger in performing more invasive life-saving skills. Yeah, I think it's really true that good ALS care is only effective when it's provided on a, a solid foundation of great BLS care. And one of the rules I think that Will and I have learned kind of over the over the years is to be very tactical on when we do employ ALS skills in the field. I'd say the majority of the stuff we do are directing BLS skills in, in the field and then directing our advanced providers or ourselves as to when those appropriate times to do an ALS intervention. And it's typically only when it's absolutely necessary. Perhaps the exception would be pain control. I do, do think that we're getting better and better at providing pain control and being more humane to people when we're able to rescue them. But uh, outside of that realm, 
doing very little to manage airways. We're splinting people, very little IV management because it's just very difficult to maintain in the backcountry and focusing a lot on those BLS skills, adequate splinting, insulation, hypothermia management, which are so important for those patients. Yeah, I think a lot of what we've learned and transfer from different treatment realms is what the military in like Iraq and Afghanistan has learned as far as tourniquets, some of these immediate life threat reversal interventions. But most of the time, it's just getting the patient out, out of that kind of technical or tactical or remote or wilderness or austere environment, whatever it may be. But then the new theaters of difficulty for the military, like Africa and the Pacific, so the, what they call these tyrannies of distance. And so the prolonged field care, so is really that concept of thinking about where TCCC or tactical combat casualty care is really that first hour of care and getting them to the trauma center. Now the prolonged field care is thinking about those hours or days. That's a lot more similar to what we may be dealing with in these search and rescue or wilderness environments. But they've got some good mantras in there. So looking at kind of the good, better, best. So you you know you're not going to be able to take your whole ICU out to the patient in the field. Okay, so what's the good? So it's like AJ mentioned, it's the AD with the view screen. It's some limited airway oxygen supplies, maybe pain control. Okay, and then kind of where you're going to intervene with those skills. And so just making conscious decision to where in that kind of extraction paradigm are you going to be doing those specific interventions. And so it's got some really good crossovers that I think have been helpful for us to kind of do what's right for that patient at that right point in time of the rescue. Dr. Smith, I also really liked what you said in a conversation you had with Jeff before we did this episode where you said that what really saves a life is good CPR, early recognition, and defibrillation. And I think that applies to people who don't necessarily have medical training, people who do have medical training. And so I think that was a really, really great point to make is early recognition, good CPR. And then, you know, if you have an AED defibrillation. Yeah, absolutely. So these, the chain of survival that we've learned about for kind of the American Heart Association. So that's why we see AEDs kind of in airports and all these different places. And again, that basic life support skill set and and now we're seeing the Stop the Bleed campaign, the, the kits that are next to them. So like tourniquets and wound packing. So again, those are a lot of the same interventions that we kind of do at a train platform to the same thing we'd be doing in the backcountry. And so again, still some of that patient care carries over with the same priorities. The outdoors is anything but perfect when it comes to weather, resources, information, and personnel. Before you can even begin to assess the patient, you often have to find the patient and then deal with the external factors I just mentioned. For example, Dr. Smith, you were involved in an overnight search and rescue for a snowboarder caught in an avalanche on Taylor Mountain, west of Teton Pass, in which the reporting party witnessed the avalanche but was unable to locate her partner with an avalanche transceiver, which is a handheld electronic device that is typically worn under the jacket with a harness around the chest and it emits a signal. If you're buried, others in your party can switch their receivers to receive and use the search mode to locate their partners buried below the snow surface. Avalanche and weather conditions were impeding the rescue ops that night, and at one point were suspended throughout the evening and resumed the following morning with heli bombing for rescuer safety, which is simply hovering over avalanche paths and dropping explosive charges onto the slope to mitigate the hazard. Yeah, those are just always tough decisions. Uh, again, I think using that instant command because one person ultimately needs to make that decision of go or no go with some input from others. But again, we were able to get out there, do a hasty search, try and see if there was somebody with a high chance or probability of survival. Once we were able to do that, kind of with the night and the dark and everything coming in, the chance of survival was very low to zero. 
but the risk to the rescuers was very high. And so again, those are the decision points that we try and look at balancing kind of all the factors that we're able to, and then just kind of go in the next day. Sometimes that's a recovery. And that's just some of the the mantras that we know there's going to be patients that are going to survive regardless of what we do. And there's going to be patients that die kind of regardless of what we do. And in case that, that patient was already deceased, but then there's that small subset of patients where we were able to get in there and really do that kind of immediate reversal of a life threat. And so that's what we strive for. But again, just realizing that there are going to be patients that are just not able to survive and that the rest of the team is so great. And yet these imperfect conditions are standard fare in uh, field medicine. And so how do you, each of you guys move forward making decisions with basic life support measures? I think that one of the mantras that I like to use is ideal to real care. I know what the ideal care situation is. If it was on the side of a road, we call three ambulances, two fire trucks, a big extrication crew. But sometimes the real care that we're able to provide kind of in the backcountry is much more limited to that. So just really understanding those differences. Yeah. You know, looking at the priorities we mentioned earlier and real situations where the weather's bad or it's late, it's getting dark. And we know that ideal care would be you know, to provide pain control and to spend time splinting a patient. But the reality is that we have 15 minutes to get that patient into the helicopter and be en route back to the landing zone to extricate them. The decision often becomes, hey, we're prioritizing transport first, because if not, we're all spending the night here, which is not ideal for the patient. And so it's a hasty packaging. We're certainly still trying to prioritize patient care, making sure we're not harming patients, missing something important. We're definitely pushing other things to the, to the side to be able to accomplish the mission within the constraints we're given. Are there any new protocols coming down the pike in wilderness medicine? Like I mentioned, the prolonged field care guidelines that the military is looking at, those have just came out as a deployedmedicine.com app or website. It's where the military puts a lot of its joint trauma systems on some of its kind of consensus guidelines and papers. But again, like I mentioned, that prolonged field care, so that good, better, best concept, looking at the uh, kind, of, kind of mantra of kind of ruck, truck, house, and airplane. So again, as you're potentially treating a patient, what can you carry on your back? Okay, what can you carry in a vehicle that's potentially going with you? And for search and rescue, that may be our helicopter or kind of one of our razors. And then kind of in those situations where they may be in the middle of Africa and waiting for extraction, they may be taking care of a patient and then in a house or kind of in an airplane for kind of hours on end. So some of those are some of those things. And again, deployedmedicine.com has all those that are open source to the public. Again, just kind of best practices that are out there that are coming up and, and just being more focused. Yeah, I think when you look at the level of providers that we work with, medical directors, um, you know, you have Wilner's First Aid, Wilner's First Responder, OEC, Outdoor Emergency Care, and then Emergency Medical Technicians, EMTs. That level of provider, you know, the background to those courses is fairly limited and the, the time they're spending in that, that education, while significant, leads them to be very protocol driven. Those protocols tend to be very black and white at that level. And then as you advance to AEMT, paramedic level providers, nurses in the field, the broader education behind those providers allows them to have more breadth of scope in their protocols, more leeway to make decisions. And I think one of the, the tacks that Will and I have taken with our education is really trying to take all of our providers and help them understand the decision framework that Will and I as physicians employ when we are in that wilderness environment 
And by working with our providers and helping them understand that decision-making, it, it gives them more options and more leeway in the field. So we, we have uh, radio failure protocols and uh, talk to our providers about the what-ifs. We can run them through those scenarios and, and feel confident that they're going to make decisions in the similar way that we would if we were on scene. So walk me through a typical rescue. What would that look like for each of you in your different positions? We could start with just basic one. For example, there's a rescue in one of the adjacent canyons outside of the Jacksonville Mountain Resort in which we have to leave the uh, resort into the backcountry. We would send a small little hasty party out to assess the situation and get a scene size up, number of patients. And one of the things that we focus on that one of the, an old climbing ranger told us was to basically do the MIV scale, which was the mechanism, the injuries, and the vitals. That way we can send a quick, succinct picture that, you know, doctors Smith and Wheeler can be like, okay, this is what happened. These are the injuries. These are the vitals. So they already, before they even get on the ship and come help us, they already have a really good idea of what they're looking at. And for my part, as just a first responder, we try to just show up and paint a really quick picture so that people up the chain of command have a really good idea of what they are going to be doing before they even leave the hangar. And I think one of the most important vital signs that we often look at is just mental status. Because if you have a patient that's unresponsive, that may be from lots of different causes, but you know that that's more of an emergency versus a patient with a normal mental status. And again, a lot of times by the time we're able to access to that patient, kind of their ultimate disease course or progression is a lot of times already going to have taken place. So yeah, mental status is one that we use a lot to help guide us what we want to do. Yeah, to go into that kind of uh, the anatomy of a search and rescue call, I mean, when someone, at least in our area, is in the backcountry and gets injured, typically that call starts with them reaching out to 911. And our emergency dispatchers are amazing when they recognize that, that call is in the, the backcountry. They are uh, usually able to Follow that call if it's at the resort or close to the resort to Mountain Station at Jackson Hall Mountain Resort or directly to the Teton County Search and Rescue Board, which is a group of seven or eight of us that will receive a page that we need to call into dispatch if there's a potential rescue. Will and I are both part, part of that mechanism. And so we'll often early on hear just the very basics of what's going on. Somebody called, said they're in this location and that they are hurt or need rescue. Our initial decision right at that point is, is it just a quick, is, is this a rescue or not? Are we paging the rest of the team? Are we getting other agencies involved because of the location? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just somebody who's lost and we need to get in touch with them. But more often than not, it's a rescue. We wind up paging our team, reaching out to other organizations that might have people closer Jackson Hole Mountain Resort is a great example of that. The patrol there is awesome at responding to out-of-bounds backcountry injuries and helping us with that by getting, just as Jeff said, somebody on scene early. And then we start to employ that risk mitigation and those kind of deeper decisions on how are we going to access this patient given their, their location. So that's kind of the behind the scenes walkthrough of the anatomy of how we organize our search and rescue here. So what is something that our listeners can do to avoid becoming a wilderness victim? Boy, I think one of the, I think companion rescue is paramount in the backcountry for the most part. And I think if someone in your party is swept away in an avalanche, you are the rescuers, at least at first. And personal responsibility is very real when there's no ski patrol headed out when you're binding breaks. 
you know, let alone your leg. We owe it to ourselves and others in our party, basically, to be versed then in basic first aid and some semblance of self-evacuation in the event of broken gear or worse. You know, for the record, backcountry gear, which includes, you know, telemark, split boards, alpine touring, has really gotten dialed in over the last decade, but it's still not infallible. So take a wilderness first aid class, take avalanche courses, go with good people. And if you can, find good mentors that have good backcountry habits. Nobody's perfect. And but it's I was lucky to go out with really good people. And I think I've been lucky in my life. I haven't I mean, I've made lots of mistakes, like so many, but I've been blessed with having really good mentors in the backcountry. I think the big thing is prevention. And we always talk about that. So like Jeff just mentioned, so having the right training before you got out, whether or not that's the avalanche skills, the first aid skills, make sure you're going with good people. Like you said, again, I think these are very common themes. Make sure you have shared with and your loved ones or friends or family kind of when you are expected back. And so, and when to kind of push the big red button and call for help. And so again, I think those are things we always have kind of variations when we start going to these back countries, there's always a little bit of a buffer zone, but the technology kind of with cell phones, with personal locator beacons, like spots and in reaches, there's a lot more communication can be done. Sometimes it's erroneous communication and sometimes erroneous signals. So we go out for those, but it's definitely helped kind of with two-way communication to and from a party to really know what's going on. So those are all the big components I'd say. And then when something does happen, I've got the number one rule that I use for my kids is don't freak out. So being able to take a deep breath, assess the situation, and then do what you need to do. So those are my big tips. Yeah, I think I have a very similar take and our Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation, our nonprofit arm, which really focuses on our preventative search and rescue has the motto of uh, be prepared, be practiced, and be present. So, you know, as Jeff mentioned, be prepared, have the right equipment for the environment you're going in, be practiced, you need to know how to, to use that equipment. And then as Dr. Smith pointed out, being present, staying calm, which is certainly easier said than done, but calm is contagious. And if you're able to use your most important tool, your brain, by staying calm, you can make good decisions and uh, make sure that you don't make a bad situation worse. What is one thing that you would recommend our listeners can do if they come across a wilderness injury or a search and rescue scenario? You know, as someone like me with limited medical training, I think the best thing you can do is if you do, as Dr. Smith said, have to push the red button, if you can calmly, if you have communication, calmly paint a very succinct, good picture. And if you have your location, you can use a lot of people ski with cell phones. And if you know how to find your coordinates, if you can give them your location and a very succinct description of what your injuries are and where you are, you're going to help your cause go a long way. Yeah, there's no doubt that cell phones and GPS have dramatically changed what search and rescue is. And by far the most useful thing that you can know is how to use your cell phone to provide your GPS coordinate to search and rescue. Once we know where you are, it is much, much easier to come and assist. Yeah, we a lot of times use the acronym LATE, L-A-T-E, so locate, access, treat, extricate. So yeah, so once we get in that first part of the search and rescue, LATE acronym done and, and location, that's huge. And then I would just say, don't freak out. So again, kind of use your mind, kind of slow down, figure out what you need to do, come up with a plan. And again, don't freak out. Can you recommend any resources for our listeners who might be interested in becoming a wilderness medical provider? I would defer to 
Dr. Smith and Dr. Wheeler. I know the Wilderness Medical Institute is a, is connected with Knowles, but I'm sure those guys can speak a lot more to that. So yeah, there's lots of different medical wilderness medical teaching agencies out there. Disclaimer, I am now the medical director for Wilderness Medical Associates International. So just had the privilege of taking over from Dr. David Johnson for that organization. But there's solo, there, there's numerous ones out there. I think looking in your local area, what's available, looking kind of what already local resources you have in place. But yeah, there, there's several ones out there. And again, there's different levels that was mentioned, some wilderness first aid, wilderness advanced first aid. Wilderness first responder is probably the biggest one that's out there. It really goes into that medical decision making of kind of being out there in the field and sometimes a prolonged situation and what to do. And then you can move up to wilderness EMT. You can be a wilderness paramedic or other wilderness advanced practice provider and then get up to wilderness physician. And so again, as you get higher up, there's not as many card carrying certifications out there, but it's more that kind of medical decision making and preparation as far as being able to, to work you up to those skill levels. Yeah, I think my recommendation would be if your general plan is day trips, wilderness first aid course through one of the, the companies that Dr. Smith mentioned. If you're doing multi-day trips, wilderness first responder is great, which I think that level or above is appropriate for search and rescue providers. And then as we kind of mentioned earlier, you know, throughout the country, in the US at least, search and rescue is mostly a volunteer organization. So volunteering with search and rescue organizations is a great way to learn more about this as well. You know, most of those organizations are either paying for you to take a course or are internally teaching wilderness medicine in some in some scope. And I'd also add, if you are a medical provider of any sort, uh, the Wilderness Medical Society is a great resource and has a lot of really interesting courses for different types of scenarios. Been a member for quite a long time. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps this up. Do any of you guys have any final comments or stories or anything you'd like to add or share? I'm going to put in a plug for our search and rescue podcast, The Fine Line. If you want to hear some more stories about what search and rescue and the Tetons and, and our region are like, it's a great podcast. Yeah, we'll definitely have to give it a listen. Yeah, for plugging other places to go listen to good things. So Seth Hawkins and David Pfeiffer, they do a raw medicine. So R-A-W. They also do a lot of wilderness medicine topics and things. And then PJ Med. So it's the Air Force Pararescue. Steve Rush does a PJ Med podcast. That's got a lot of good information. And again, a lot of these things that cross over between the military to the wilderness to other austere settings. There's a lot of lessons learned that can be shared. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Really, really appreciated all of the knowledge that you were able to share. That's it for this episode. Thank you, as always, for listening. Our guests today were Jeff Burke, Dr. Albert Wheeler, and Dr. Will Smith. This episode was written by Jeff Burke and was sponsored by the National Geographic Society's Emergency Fund for Journalists. If you liked what you heard, please give us a like, rating, or comment. This was the last episode of season two of the Emergency Docs. Please consider subscribing or follow us on Instagram if you'd like to be notified when we start season three. Until next time and until next season.